Authors in August started in 2018, and for the record, my first ever Authors in August interview was with Seth Godin, the smart and oh-so-quotable thinker on all things marketing and branding. And then a week later, Priya Parker and her spectacular book that everyone in the world should read, The Art of Gathering, because we are constantly gathering. Wherever three or more are gathered together for a purpose, we can do it better, and Priya shows how. Also that month was Amr Tolls, author of a beautiful novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. We talked about his craft, the origin of his book, and how he left a job on Wall Street to write a best-selling novel. And so Authors in August was born, and you can see in that trio, a marketing writer, a social gatherings guru, and an award-winning novelist, you can see in that trio the motley that I'm always shooting for in this podcast. Variety is the spice of life, and it's at the heart of foolishness, too. Well, we've just finished Authors in August 2021 edition, and whether or not you read along with me then or in future, and I hope you're inspired to do so, one thing is for sure. You were able to listen and learn along with me as we spoke to three world-class thinkers, looking at topics as diverse as the stories we tell ourselves, for good or ill, right through to the stories that came from history that were handed down to shape our 20th and 21st century perceptions of formative topics that run deep, like, well, race or gender. And now it's mailbag, and that means it's your chance to weigh in on the month that was. Shall we do that? Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for joining with me here at the end of August. It's been quite an August. Quick review, Positive Intelligence, the book we led off with with Shirzad Shamin. That was on August 4th of this year. By the way, August 4th, always a, a date that jumps out to me because The Motley Fool launched on August 4th of 1994 on AOL. That was the very first day. This was pre-web for those who remember those halcyon and ancient days, pre-web. So yeah, the World Wide Web was not a thing yet, but private online services. Do you remember the sound of dialing your computer in through the phone? <laughs> kind of something like that. I don't want to make it too loud on your ears, but yeah, that's how AOL sounded when The Motley Fool launched as Keyword Fool, August 4th of 1994. I do want to mention that back then, AOL barely had keywords or channels. It was early days for America Online. And so we said, hey, obviously you guys are going to give us Keyword Fool, but by the way, Keyword Help is not being used. You're not using... Could, could we be Keyword Help on AOL? Like if people type help, would it go to The Motley Fool? And... uh they, they declined that, which is probably the right move for their business. But at the time, it shows how gung-ho we were and how, uh, how all out we were to reach as many people. I will mention that our old logo, you may remember our friendly jester face that we used for the first 20 years or so of our business. Somebody at AOL just nicknamed him Elvis. And that's because Elvis kept popping up on the AOL main screen and they just needed a quick handle, a way to refer to it internally at AOL, like put Elvis back up on the main screen tonight at 7 p.m. And so they did give us keyword Elvis. And so for years, of course, America Online doesn't work too much anymore anyway, and not as it once did. But for years, if you typed in keyword Elvis, you were taken inexplicably probably to the Motley Fool 
occasionally we would have somebody pop up on one of our, one of our discussion boards saying, yeah, I've been using this for a year and a half or so. I still don't know why when I first typed in Elvis, I got here. But anyway, I've enjoyed it here, here at Keyword Fool. So August 4th, always a date that jumps out to me. And it was a positive talk this month with Shirzad Shamin. August 11th, do more great work with Michael Bungay-Stanier. A delight to talk with Michael about how you and I can make the best decisions to pursue the best work that we can and all that that asks of us and making sure that we're in touch with who we are so that we can make the right selections of what we should do next. And by next, I mean tomorrow. I mean next year. I mean, yeah, the rest of your life. So a great talk with Michael. And then last week, Gods of the Upper Air with Charles King. Charles, who wins the 2019 Parkman History Prize for his book, and he's not even an historian, which I I love that detail, but a really thoughtful look at why and how we take for granted today concepts like race, gender, and sexuality, and how so much of that is inherited from a century ago, and actually just the science of the time, which I suppose was doing its best, but came up with all kinds of crazy, sometimes backheaded notions that really set the tone for people like me who were born in the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, and we have to disabuse ourselves of a lot of the assumptions that we've made, and you need to kind of be a god of the upper air, get above it all, to start seeing humanity as one undivided whole. So I really enjoyed all three of those conversations. I hope you did too. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to a few of them, well, I hope you can make some beach time in September or some places beaches are pretty great in October, Southern Hemisphere. So there is still a lot of opportunity for you to read those books and or hear those podcasts, me joining with three geniuses. I hope my sound quality is about as good as it normally would be from one week to the next. This is the first podcast I've ever done with my laptop, with my headphones jacked into my laptop, and with my friend Rick Engdahl on the other end, my producer. We're using Zencaster, as we do, to record this podcast, but I'm doing it this time from one of the more beautiful places in the world, and that would be Lake Como in Italy. So I'm hoping this all uploads. I suppose if you're hearing me right now, it means it all worked which does suggest maybe I should give myself license to travel some more in the year ahead. You know, I do, Rick and I have done this podcast without ever taking a break, no reruns for more than six years now. We're in our seventh year. So it's really important to me to be able to do this podcast every week. But I've previously thought, well, I couldn't really travel while doing this podcast. So I just want to say, magnifico. It really does work to stream this podcast from Italy. So who knows? the places will go in the year ahead. And one final bookkeeping note, if you haven't already, I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify, Google Play, wherever you find podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at RBI Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter if you like. I'm at David G. Fool. Finally, I hope you'll give us a review. Throw me some stars. Let us know how we're doing. We read every comment. All right, let's let's do some hot takes with some of the tweets of the past month of authors in August. Generally, at Jiminy Jillikers, Jason Moore sent in last week with at Box of Crayons. Well, that was Michael Bungay. Stanier was terrific. And my copy of Do More Great Work arrives today. I'm not the world's fastest reader, so I'm approaching authors in August with what I dub, quotes, the sandwich approach. Listen, read listen again. Well, I like your sandwich approach, Jason, and thank you very much. And yeah, I think part of the spirit of Authors in August 
is to interest you in some of these books. Certainly, anybody who's crackerjack enough to a week ahead of time when I announce the following week's author, go out and buy the book and at least read part of it, gets extra credit. But I think a lot of the purpose of Authors in August is specifically to interest you with these interviews in these books and get you thinking, and yeah, sure, reading those books. I'll also say that we got a number of tweets from people saying something to the effect of, while I didn't read that one or may not read that one, my eyes are being opened up to the world or I'm inspired to read more than I have previously. And darn it, do you remember the bookmobile? When I was a little kid, the bookmobile came through town and got kids to read. That's kind of what I'm trying to do, bookmobile for adults. Of Shirzad Shamin's appearance, his second all-time on Rule Breaker Investing, at Pro Shop Guy MF1 wrote, David G. Fool interviews Shirzad Shamin on positive intelligence. Just remember, quote, who knows what is good and what is bad, end quote, as life presents gift and opportunities at every turn. His work is not about changing oneself, but helping you remember who you really are. Well, well said, pro shop guy at Jason underscore Trice, who quotes Shirzad at the start of his tweet. This way, he says, if you believe you can convert anything into a gift and opportunity, you can. Shirzad Shamin. Jason goes on to write, thank you, Shirzad and David, for this week's Rule Breaker podcast. Positive intelligence is a must read and has enriched my life. Well, I'm delighted to know that, Jason. And I really want to share that workout with as many people as possible because like a lot of the books I try to feature on this podcast, I really do believe it's something that anybody could and should pick up and improve their life. So very true of Shirzad's work, as it is also true of Michael Bungay Stanier's work. At 307, Fool wrote, Rule Breakers Investing and Do More Great Work. Well, I already mowed the lawn, said 307, Fool. My favorite Rule Breaker Investing podcast companion activity, mowing the lawn. So I'll have to randomly roll for a new chore to knock out while I listen. Can't wait. And I think it was worth waiting for Michael's first appearance on this podcast. I want to mention he graciously then invited me to join him on his podcast. He referenced this briefly a couple of weeks ago. He does a podcast where people are invited on to read two pages from one of their favorite books. And he dropped me a note a few days ago and said he'd love to have me do that. So now I just need to think about what book I'd like to read two pages of. But I look forward to doing that with Michael on his podcast. In the meantime, I've already seen a number of photos of people taking pictures of their Do More Great Work book that they ordered off of Amazon or some similar place as a consequence of the interview. So I love to see in social media those book covers and that real actions are triggered by this podcast and authors in August. And lastly, I want to mention Charles King at 307 Fool wrote, an amazing episode. We've come so far and yet we will only continue to be better together. Humanity is still learning how to unleash our full potential by removing our constructed ceilings and barriers. And thank you for that at 307 Fool. I agree with that. I share that optimism. And I think in particular, during this time of a lot of pessimism around these these topics and, and understandably so in some cases, and then by the way, COVID. So there are a lot of reasons for pessimism. But that's why, in particular, I think shining an optimistic light on what I think will be an even better future is so worth doing. And I think Charles's work really 
frees so many of us to realize that what we thought was a deviance in ourselves or somebody else, a lot of these are social constructs that simply are in us because of the place that we were born and the time that we were born, what Gramps told us or or the camp counselors around the fire. And while a lot of us have had great influences and have benefited from the wisdom of our elders, it's also true that many people have heard some crazy stuff from people who influenced them when they grew up. And by the way, the shocking thing about that is a lot of that came from science itself in the 20th century, especially the first half of the 20th century, which Charles is so eloquent about. So I really enjoyed that. And in fact, I wanted to share just one page from a new book I'm reading because I think it connects so well with that conversation about gods of the upper air last week. This one just jumped off the page to me. I feel like it's relevant, and I hope it'll open your eyes as it did mine. When I read this page from the book, A Good Provider is One Who Leaves. Now, I should mention this is not an author in August. Perhaps next August, I'll talk to author Jason DeParle, but I've really enjoyed this book about all of those people worldwide who are migrating. They're migrant workers. They go from usually a tough circumstance to a much better circumstance, often by themselves, and remit money back home, let's say, to the Philippines, which is the most popular migrant worker nation, a nation that literally for a couple of decades recently said, hey, please do go abroad. Please, get, we don't have enough opportunities for you in our country, so go abroad and send money back home. And indeed, a lot of people have been pulled out of poverty by the sacrifices made by a parent who went by himself or herself to work on a cruise ship and has their heart and so much of their money still sent back to the people that they left, hoping to create prosperity and rejoin down the line. So that's the the purpose of a good provider is one who leaves, and that line comes directly from a Filipino in the book, a good provider is one who leaves their country, their family. It's both a statement of irony, but also a statement of fact in a lot of cases. Anyway, the author writes this, and again, I'm hooking this back to last week's conversation, and then we'll move on to rule breaker mailbag items. And I quote, DePaul writes, I was writing about an Irish-born teen whose undocumented parents faced deportation, a circumstance with abundant parallels in the United States. Cork-born, that would be, of course, Cork, Ireland, Cork-born and proud of it, George Jordan Dimbo studied Gaelic, ate rashers, played hurling, prayed to the saints, and papered his walls with awards from parochial school. And if the government won its case, he would be moving to Africa. His parents had come to Ireland illegally from Nigeria. Dear Justice Minister, he wrote when he was nine, I heard my mommy and daddy whispering about deportation. Please do not deport us. Remember, he added, I am also an Irish child. DePaul goes on to conclude in this little section, Ireland's dash to diversity brought little of the conflict found elsewhere in Europe. His mother's Yoruba headdress was an accepted sight at the Sing Street School. And now the line that just jumped off the page at me. Not long after George arrived, a classmate confided that he disliked black people. But I'm black, George said. No, the boy said. You're Irish. Wow, yeah, so... How much should the place you were born determine your identity? How much should looking like most of the people in the place you were born mean that you belong or not? I know many people who have come to America as immigrants, 
and a bunch of them are as or more American, in my opinion anyway, than others, some of them of my fellow Americans. So identity, it's such a compelling topic. In the end, I think what unites most of us beyond, as Charles King would say, our undivided whole of being all humans, where I think identity makes the most sense and aligns us is probably around values. And so that's why I've often asked myself, what are America's core values? What are any place's core values? I think those things in the future will count for more than they have in the past. And things like what you look like or sound like will matter less when we're talking about your identity and who you're connected to. So just a thought. Maybe that's a book I'll feature next August, but it connected, I just read it in the past week, it connected so well with Charles's work that I wanted to share that with you this week. Okay, let's get on. We've got six Rule Breaker mailbag items this month. Let's start it off with Rule Breaker mailbag item number one. This one comes from Ross Parrish. Ross, thanks for the note. David and the RBI crew, I've been listening to this podcast for a couple of years now. It's been truly enlightening and changed the way I view not just business, but life. I frequently find myself analyzing the world through a rule breaker's philosophy, and I love it, writes Ross. Innovation is just one well-executed idea away. But in the words of Ferris Bueller, and he quotes, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you may miss it. Ross goes on, I didn't realize how much the rule breaker's philosophy had infiltrated my mind until earlier this week while watching the Olympic high jump. As I was watching, I couldn't help but think about how revolutionary it must have been the first time someone jumped over the bar with their back towards the bar. I imagine the other competitors at the time probably thought the athlete was, well, breaking the rules by not following the generally accepted method. But now I can't help but wonder what accepted method in sports we're going to look back at 40 years from now that will make the 2021 contests feel antiquated. Progress and innovation always seem obvious after you see them. So whether it's the high jump, the West Coast offense, sabermetrics, or your favorite stock, we're all just one well-executed idea away from changing everything we thought we knew. I want to end by saying thank you. Thank you for disrupting my old outlook on life with this Rule Breakers philosophy full on. Ross Parrish. Well, Ross, thank you very much. And I I appreciate that celebration of rule breaking. And really, I can never hear too much of it because I'm always fascinated by people who come at things from a totally different angle and change the world. That's certainly what the, the anthropologists of the 20th century did to hail back to the book we were just discussing. But you gave some great examples, largely from sports, starting with the Olympic high jump. But you also mentioned the West Coast offense, which is from American football, sabermetrics, which is a statistical a refreshing statistical look at American baseball that changed it led to Moneyball. Um, I just want to mention a few other non-sports examples just to add to the list. How about jazz music? Now, I'm not a huge jazz music aficionado. I just don't know that much about it. I don't know the history, and I did not watch Ken Burns's jazz documentary, although I'm sure it's very worthy. But I certainly admire what I know of it, especially how rule-breaking it was. Instead of playing from a score, from a script, musicians all of a sudden We're just playing, listening to each other, and creating as they went. That is certainly a rule-breaking approach to music. How about food? How about 
Really since the 1970s, this began in earnest, but fusion cuisine. Do you remember those Reese's peanut butter television commercials of yours, older hands among us? Hey, you got peanut butter in my chocolate. Wait, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. And then they both, having bumped into each other with their respective treats, they both taste the mix and go, that's really good. Well, that's that's exactly what people have done with like Mexican and Asian food. For the last almost 50 years or so, a lot of us almost take it for granted today, but this is a relatively new phenomenon, the rule-breaking phenomenon of fusion cuisine. So whether we're talking about music or food, sure, yeah, e-commerce stocks you mentioned, here's, here's a pretty innovative rule-breaking company. And yet what it did reminds us sometimes you don't have to be that amazingly inventive. I think Planet Fitness is a pretty good example of a rule-breaking company in a world that has more and more complicated workout machines with higher and higher prices at your local gym. Planet Fitness came along and said, actually, just you know, $10 a month. And by the way, this is mainly just going to be treadmills. And it, this is for the rest of us. And that's kind of the positioning that Planet Fitness has taken to multi-billion dollar valuation and kind of industry leadership within what it does. So the examples go on and on of somebody who specifically subverted the status quo, challenged power, or questioned conventional wisdom out in front of us. And whether it's sports, music, cuisine, or yeah, business, I think rule-breaking can never be celebrated too much. So I loved your note, Ross, and I was more than happy to make that the leadoff hitter for this month's mailbag. Thank you, Ross Parrish. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number two. This one comes from Mark Blank. Hi, David. I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now and really love your simplistic and thematic approach to explaining the stock market. I recently had the pleasure of watching your interview with Dave Lee from the Dave Lee Investing YouTube channel. It was a great watch and really cool to see you on the other side of the interview process answering questions about The Motley Fool and Rule Breaker Investing. Great job. Pause that note right there for a sec, Mark, and say, I loved it. That was so much fun. And anybody who would enjoy watching me for one hour and 36 minutes talking heads with Dave Lee on his very popular Dave Lee Investing channel on YouTube, yeah, just Google Dave Lee, David Gardner, and you'll find that full conversation, which was immensely enjoyable. He asked great, really thoughtful questions, and I had so much fun with that. And a lot of people have watched that. Dave has a popular channel, so it's my pleasure to join in. My brother, Tom Gardner, also was on Dave's channel. You can see Tom. Tom was on a few months before I was. So if you want to see both Gardner brothers in action, Dave Lee has got you covered on his YouTube channel. Anyway, picking it up right there, Mark writes, there was one question that Dave asked that really stuck with me. And while I thought you answered it elegantly, it did leave me wanting a bit more. Essentially, he was asking about the quantitative aspect of your stock screening process, since most of the six rule breaker attributes are largely qualitative. You've explained on many a podcast that part of your contrarian approach to rule breakers is not looking at companies the same way that Wall Street does, i.e., P.E. ratios, valuations, etc. But I wonder, Mark writes, if you might spend a bit of time going over the main financial criteria you look for when picking these stocks. You even mentioned a template you would provide to Motley Fool analysts when asking them to dive into the ideas that you came up with. Insights into the types of things on that template would be very helpful for someone like myself, who has, Mark writes, next to zero accounting or financial background. And yet, 
I consider myself to be a part of the one-third of fools who find investment research fun and engaging. I believe that was the ratio used in the interview, but correct me if I'm wrong there. All in all, Mark concludes, it was a phenomenal interview and a great summary of what The Fool and Rule Breakers is all about. I look forward to your reappearance on Dave's show and others. Fool on Mark Blank. Well, Mark, thank you very much for that note. And I think one of my primary points is almost anything that can be expressed as simply as a number these days, as a stock picker, I feel as if computers can grab that number, can add it to ratios, can compare it to other numbers, can make calculations much faster than you or I can. So I think at the spirit, at the heart of rule breaker investing is the qualitative things that computers can't latch on to with numbers. And that's why I tend not to emphasize numbers very much in my investment approach. In fact, you used a phrase in your note, you said when you screen for stocks, and I actually don't screen for stocks. Mark, I've never used stock screening. That would be taking a whole industry or the whole market at large and deducing down, filtering down from everything to a few things. That is not a process, a stock screening process that I use. I'm actually an inductive thinker. I like to look flip up stones, look what's underneath them. And if it happens to be something interesting underneath whatever stone I just flipped up, I I get more interested. I start researching it as a stock. So you should know a couple of the assumptions you're making in your note, I don't use as part of my investment approach. I do not never have screened stocks. Now, with that said, I feel like I do owe you some numbers. So let me give you a quick five numbers that I think are worth looking at when we're researching stocks in no particular order. Here they are. The first one I'll mention is sales growth. That's really important because if you're going to find a company that you think is a rule breaker, you want to actively make sure that people are actually purchasing the product or service, that it's real, it's out there in the market, and it's popular, and it has a high growth rate. Now, most companies that come public at some point were private, and they probably had to have a very high growth rate to even get venture capital money to get them started in the first place. This reminds me of my wonderful conversation more than a month ago with Olin Douglas, head of Motley Fool Ventures, that I think a number of you enjoyed on this podcast, where you hear that it's really important to have like triple-digit sales growth. That means 100% or more sales growth if you're a tiny startup. You really have to be punching it on the top line. So I don't favor companies that don't have products yet or pie in the sky, hope to have products or services one day. I like to see companies that have high sales growth, double digits, certainly depending on the size and uh, stage of that company. So sales growth. Number two, net profit margin. That's a complicated phrase for some, but it's very simple for most of us to understand. If a company has a dollar of sales, the net profit margin is how many pennies on that dollar represent profit. So, for example, if somebody is selling a cup of lemonade, but it actually costs them more in cups and lemonade mix and service than the dollar they're charging, they, of course, have no pennies of profit on the dollar. They have losses. But most of my favorite companies are quite profitable. A simple rule of thumb, I often look for companies that have net profit margins. That means profits after you've taken out everything, including taxes, and if they still have 10 cents or more of profit on the dollar, that's a net profit margin of 10% or higher. Those are often the companies that I favor because I believe this is a very competitive world in business that we all live in. And so if somebody's making quite a bit of profit, a lot of other people are probably competing for that same high level of profit. But if companies maintain 
high levels of profit. Well, that starts to look like they have a sustainable competitive advantage, which is another rule breaker investing trait we look for. So anyway, number number two that I'm mentioning is net profit margin. The third number I'll mention for you, this one's kind of a proxy. It's more a concept than one you can easily look up on financial statements. And it's not true of all companies, but I love to think that there are raving fans among the customer base of the stock that I might be looking at. Especially, it's easy to see if there are consumers buying from the company, like Peloton has become one of the most popular brands in the world today very quickly. This is among consumers who are quizzed about which companies they really love. And Peloton ranks extremely high, which is very impressive to me. So again, it's easy to have some of that consumer love and see it as a stock researcher when a company sells to consumers. But of course, a lot of businesses are business to business. They don't sell to you and me, they sell to other businesses. But as best you can, the net promoter score, if you can find it, for companies that you're researching is basically showing among its customer base, what portion of the customers really love or admire the products or services that they're buying from that company? What portion are indifferent? And what portion might actively dislike that company's products or brand? And then that promoter number, which is something I've talked about before on Rule Breaker Investing, basically nets out all the people who are indifferent or negative from the people who are positive and kind of expresses it as a percentage. So quick math, if a company has 60% of people who are raving fans, they say, yes, I, I do recommend this to my friends and family, and I give this company a 9 out of 10 or higher then those are promoters. So in our example, we're going to say 60%, which by the way, is eye-popping. This is not true of most companies, but 60% of all people promote actively promote that company to their friends and family. Let's pretend now that 30% are indifferent, take it or leave it. Well, we actually ignore those for our number, and that leaves us with 10% that we would describe as detractors. They would give the company low marks. They don't like it for whatever reason. So to determine the net promoter score, you take that 60%, you ignore the middle group, and you subtract out the detractors. And so you'd end up with a net promoter score of 50. Now, 50 is a very high number. But if you can find a company that is, I would say, 20 or higher, it all depends on industry dynamics, lots of other factors. So there's no magic number I'm here to promote. I am here, though, to promote the concept when we're talking about numbers of trying to put a number on how much people really like a company and its products and services. That seems to me very important. The last two numbers I'll mention are the amount of cash the company has versus how much it's burning. We'll talk about that in a sec. And then the fifth one is straight out of Rule Breaker investing trait for the company's number three, strong past price appreciation. I like to see a stock that has well beaten the market over the previous six months before I've recommended it. Some of my best stocks have actually more than doubled in the year leading up to me finally deciding to recommend or buy the stock. And that has been a very positive indicator of their future performance. So a lot of people figure they missed it at that point and ignore the stock if it's doubled. I get and always have gotten more interested once the stock has doubled. That makes me more bullish. That's a number. I did quickly skip over number four, cash. You know, it's really important to be able to look at a balance sheet. And I'm an English major. I'm self-taught. You can too. Anybody who takes some time to Google and read, and there are lots of learning resources these days on the internet to learn how to read a balance sheet. But it basically is kind of looking at somebody's bank statement and seeing how much cash they have in the bank versus how much debt they might have. And while we can do that for ourselves with our own little bank accounts, every American company has to report 
on a quarterly basis the state of its balance sheet. And I love to see how much cash they have and whether they are adding to that cash from one quarter to the next or burning cash. And if they are burning cash, how much cash do they have and might they run out of it? So I think those are really important dynamics. I'm speaking generally to the balance sheet. And to close my long shaggy dog answer to rule breaker mailbag item number two, Mark, there are a lot of numbers that we should know as investors. If we're taking ourselves seriously and becoming avid about the subject, most of them are fifth grade math and involve learning a term that you might not have known before. But once you know it, the number itself is pretty easy. It often comes down to addition, subtraction, multiplication, or division. And so that's why I've always tried to make it evident to as many people as possible that yes, you can do this, Mark Blank and everybody else listening to me right now. You can certainly be a successful investor and use these numbers and of course others that we've written about in our books, etc., to choose stocks and beat the market. I think over the course of time, using time as your ally by looking for excellence among the companies that you buy part ownership of. So there was a mini investment lesson, Mark, and anybody else still listening. Okay, let's go on to Rule Breaker Mailbag. Item number three. This one comes from Brendan. Brendan writes, Hi, David and team. I've been a member for about a year and a half and a Rule Breaker Investing podcast listener for about the same time. I have a question about a theory of adding up versus doubling down. Now, the recent episodes, Two Fools and Five Stocks Pursued by a Bear, both of which appeared earlier this summer, caused me, says Brendan, to think of two seemingly opposing views that are perfectly valid in the Rule Breaker Investing Universe. And they are one, Winners Win, which he quotes from the Two Fools podcast I did with NFL head coach Frank Reich. We had a great talk about Winners Win. That's number one. The second Brendan's mentioning is that sometimes our favorite stocks are down. That is, the winners aren't always winning. Sometimes they drop. And that's why Brendan referenced my final five-stock sampler, Five Stocks Pursued by a Bear. And so I see, Brendan, you're thinking about how these two things, both of which I said out of my own one mouth, look almost like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth because we're celebrating on the one hand winners winning and buying more of a winner and letting them continuing to win. But then there I am in my final five-stock sampler, picking intentionally five stocks that had declined 30% or more in every case in a very recent period of time. Anyway, Brendan goes on, now thinking about these two ideas caused me to build a tool that would allow me to look at my individual stock performance versus the market for any given time frame, as well as check the last time that I've invested in a given stock. Brendan goes on, I decided to try an experiment. What if I invested in a stock that is up 30% or more in what he calls the medium past? That would be the last three to six months. But to also consider, but not necessarily invest in, adding to some of my holdings that are currently being pursued by a bear. That would mean dropping. This framework and theory allows me to highlight the winners so I can add to them, but also see when some companies are on the discount rack. Is this idea foolish or foolish? Of course, capital F foolish or small f foolish, fool on, Brandon. Well, first, I just want to praise that you're hitting on what I, I think of as a, a polarity. Now, the concept of polarities has been written about before in some great books on the subject, and it's kind of a framework that I think everybody should know. So, dear listener, if you don't know what I mean when I say polarities, let's do a really short course in this concept. 
So at the heart of polarities is the notion that there isn't just one perfect way to be. Things often bounce back from one end of a spectrum to another, and it's fine and appropriate when they do so. Let me give a quick example from the world of business. So let's say that you're a leader and you are overseeing an employee and you find yourself on the one hand challenging her. She responds really well to challenge. You're not going to do this all the time, but you feel it's an appropriate time to really get up in her face some and say, I think you, I don't think you can just beat that target this year. I think you can double that. And I challenge you to do that. And there might be a little bit of, I don't know, college football halftime talk when we're down, motivational talk, but you're really getting up in somebody, maybe a team's face and challenging them. And that often can look like great leadership. However, if we were doing that all the time, it would probably get tiring and not be very effective. So at the total opposite end of the challenge approach as a leader, how about support? How about, you know what, things are down right now, but I want you to know something, you're great at what you do, and I believe in you, and even though we didn't get this right this time, or maybe you made a bad mistake, I'm pretty sure you're going to turn that into a gift and an opportunity, you say to this person or team, and you make sure that you are deeply supportive of them. So challenge at one end of the polarity and support kind of the exact opposite instinct at the other. And the key for most great leaders is they bounce back and forth and they know which end of the polarity to be on. So there are leaders who probably get by with just challenging people all day long, all lifelong, and maybe that does work. And there might be people who just nurture, 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 but never challenge. But I suspect most of the great leaders do both and know when to do it. So, Brendan, that's why, to return to your question, I think we're talking here about a polarity. On the one end, you've got winners winning, and you and I want to want to identify the winners. Uh, we want to buy the winners. As they win, we want to add to them, and that's because why? What do winners do, Brendan, and everybody listening to me? They win. And so, you and I are going to do best, the best companies, the best stocks of our time are stocks that typically just keep going up. Yes, they have hard times sometimes, but they keep winning and for really good reasons because they're a winner. And I've talked about that elsewhere. We don't need to go on about that right here. But then on the other hand, sometimes, as you wrote, our favorite stocks are down. And yes, my five stocks pursued by a bear, which I'm really delighted to say is my final five-stock sampler is beating the market pretty handily just uh, some weeks later. I realize it's only early days for that, but those were all stocks that were actually down 30% or more just weeks or months before I picked them. And so it might look like I was a hypocrite when I did that because I was all about winners, but there I am selecting losers. And yet I think here's the key point to conclude. When some of our favorite stocks are down, now assuming that they are winning companies, I think will be well rewarded in that short-term drop to add to that position. I'd also be fine with you adding to a position on a short-term rise. The main point is if you found a winner, you can buy it at almost any time. And if you really think you have a great company, how about a great company like Netflix, one of my biggest, longest time holdings, I've been rewarded continually for adding to it when it rises and by the way, when it drops, sometimes it feels easier to do that during one of those times than the other. But the main point is if something's going to win for 20 years or more, your main goal is to add to that over the course of time, not head fake yourself about whether it's just recently won or lost. So I think the key lesson here is sometimes when people hear me say winners win, I think they're only thinking 
about the stock and its stock market performance. But really, I think what we're talking about is we're talking about winning as a company. The companies themselves are putting up great numbers. Sometimes stocks drop 30%, not because the company blew a quarter, but because it posted a great quarter. It just wasn't as great as the market thought. But it's still a great quarter. And if you can briefly stop crying in your soup the next day or so when the stock trades down 17% at market open, you'll realize, hey, this is still a great company. And so you might want to continue to add to that winner and let it win over time. So I hope this has given you a little bit more knowledge about why I sometimes talk out both sides of my mouth. It's because of the nature of polarities and recognizing that there are multiple good answers that sometimes sound like they contradict each other. But the truth is, it's about knowing when to pull out the right tool. So I hope both of those will work for you. I won't speak to your overall system. I think it's great you're experimenting and learning. And that is itself a capital F foolish approach. It's funny thinking through the the first three Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag items. This month was authors in August, and I certainly talked about that a lot up front on the show, speaking to a lot of tweets. But here I am answering investment questions for the most part. It is a reminder that this is Rule Breaker Investing. I do love reading. I do love business. But I know a lot of you are focused most of all on investment advice. And I won't forget that. In fact, we'll be returning to that as we do at the start of September every year. And I'm looking forward to the month ahead. You know something else I love? Stories. And here's a great one. Rule breaker mailbag item number four. This one comes from Bradley Larson. And I want to mention before I read this, that Bradley submitted a much longer version of this a couple of months ago. And I had some fun with him tweaking him a little bit saying, great note. How about like half the length? Because I just can't read a five-page letter on this podcast. It goes too long. And so Bradley took that to heart reshaped it in what I'm about to share with you, and it's even better than it was the first time. So thank you for this note. Let's begin. Dear David, often in life, less can be more. I would like to tell you how I came to learn this and how it may apply to investing. In 1996, I left my home on a great adventure, a road trip. My friend and I quit our jobs and headed where young men often go, west. I believe Marie Kondo's future self would approve of the limited items we packed into that van. Backpacking equipment sparked our joy, and destinations to use that gear were our focus. In Yosemite National Park, our hiking turned vertical, and we started rock climbing. We learned to climb, as well as the art of dirtbagging. Now, dirtbaggers, climbers on the road, are proud to live on almost nothing. Pinching every penny, Wealth is not measured in money, it's measured in adventure. Pre-smartphone, we were unconnected. Life was simple, and we lost ourselves in nature. At night, staring into the dirtbagger TV, that's Bradley's phrase for a campfire, a phrase was commonly uttered, quote, I wonder what the poor people are doing, end quote. Well, I spent the next 10 years in Yosemite, Bradley writes, I combined my love for hiking with rock climbing and summited several of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Mountaineering or peak bagging requires hiking many miles to a remote summit. The phrase light is right became my mantra. Less is more when you carry it to the top of a mountain. Like me, many have lost themselves in Yosemite. Alex Hunold can be found climbing El Capitan with just a chalk bag around his waist 
in the film Free Solo. Less is more for Hunold on a 3,000-foot granite face. You may also remember Cheryl Strayed's memoir-slash-movie, Wild, where she started her 1,100-mile hike on the Pacific Crest Trail with an oversized backpack and heavy boots. She learned quickly and shed the burdensome weight before she reached Yosemite. Light is right when you carry it from Mexico to Canada on the Pacific Crest Trail. Well, life on the road and mountaineering taught me less is often more less physical weight when we carry it and less mental weight when we tune out the modern world. For me, Bradley writes, too much information resulted in decisions to sell stocks that went on to be huge winners. Less information would have been more when I started my climb up Mount Netflix in 2006. I sold my shares, Bradley writes, after reading articles about how Blockbuster was going to eat their lunch and how grand the views would be from the top of Mount Facebook if I hadn't turned back, that is, sold because I was told they were the next MySpace. Mount Tesla? Too many crazy tweets. With less information, I may have stayed on my path. Well, moving forward, I'm going to listen to the guides. That would be my favorite Motley Fool analysts. I'm going to pick a mountain to climb. That's a public company. And stay on the trail. I will bring my rain gear and be prepared to face some dark storm clouds if they come. I will emulate the great naturalist John Muir, who also lost himself in Yosemite. Muir embraced turbulence in nature and I will embrace turbulence in my investments the same way. After an earthquake that sent rockfall down the steep cliffs of Yosemite Valley, Muir wrote, quote, Storms of every sort, torrents, earthquakes, cataclysms, convulsions of nature, etc., however mysterious and lawless at first sight they may seem, are only harmonious notes in the song of creation, varied expressions of of God's love, end quote. And Bradley goes on, when my stock takes a 30% drop, well, I'll think of John Muir at the top of a 100-foot tall tree he climbed in the middle of a windstorm and later wrote, quote, in its widest sweeps, my treetop described an arc of from 20 to 30 degrees, but I felt sure of its elastic temper, having seen others of the same species still more severely tried, bent almost to the ground indeed in heavy snows without breaking a fiber. I was therefore safe and free to take the wind into my pulses and enjoy the excited forest from my superb outlook." End quote. My life has been a wonderful journey. Bradley concludes, I return to my career in the mid-2000s and enjoy finding new places to put 401k contributions each month. I've been a dirtbagger, a peak bagger, and fortunately had a few multi-baggers thanks to The Motley Fool. Thanks again, and always remember, less can be more, and light is right. Yours truly, Bradley Larson. And if you want to give Bradley a follow on Twitter. He's at living it Lars. Well, of course, the parallels that you draw between climbing and investing or life and investing are completely appreciated, Bradley. And that's an eloquent note. It, uh, lovely to read. I've, I've never read anything by the naturalist John Muir, but 
I mean, I, I've been through the Muir Woods. I, I probably should know a little bit more about John Muir. I do see he's a Scot. Uh, so good on you, John Muir, and all of our fellow Scottish friends. But yeah, I, I love not just those connections and your eloquence, but also you've given us an example of how you live your life within with, with a philosophy. I, I think it's great to have a mantra or two, not just one, and you have more than one, but light is right, sure. And less can be more. And while I will say that less can be more is a phrase that I think many of us have heard many a time, i.e., it's not wildly inventive or original, it's powerful. And sometimes just locking down on things that run deep and are powerful can take you to great heights. And clearly I can see it's done that for you, Bradley. So again, thank you for sharing Loved hearing about your early adulthood, your fling with nature and all that you learned and then came back to an adult life and and tested out some of those lessons and no doubt continue to do so. So best wishes for you and yours and of course your investing, sir, full on. Rule Breaker Mailbag item number five. This one comes from Belgium. Thank you, Benjamin, for this note. Hi, David. I listened to your interesting interview in your podcast with Shirzad Shamin about positive intelligence. Thank you for including these insightful interviews about life. Thank you very much. I love the many analogies and life lessons in that interview. At some point, you asked for his view on an investment topic, and a question came up in my mind, Benjamin writes, which probably many have. When hearing the expression that, quote, watering the flowers and cutting the weeds, end quote, is so much better than cutting the flowers and watering the weeds, I wonder what is best to do with fresh money to invest when correction strikes, a few of your stocks when earnings reports are released. Last week, for example, a few of my stocks, which are recommended by Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, had a significant decline, despite the earnings reports being quite positive. The decline had more to do with a lowered forecast for next quarter. Fundamentally, and over the long run, which is the foolish way to invest, there is nothing wrong with the stocks. Therefore, a buying opportunity to strengthen the position was published by those services. And he gives examples of, for example, Roku or Fiverr. However, when following the principle, water the flowers and cut the weeds, isn't it better to add to a winning position with fresh powder versus strengthening stocks, which went down significantly? Even though the stocks are still healthy, obviously it'll take more time to turn around the general investment sentiment while winning stocks already have a tailwind. What are your thoughts on this? Kind regards, Fulon Benjamin from Belgium. Well, obviously, there's some continuation from some of the points that I was trying to make earlier when I was speaking to Brendan's notes about when to add. Do you add to winners that are winning, or do you buy stocks that are declining 30% in the short term? So I think just to underline one lesson we've already talked about and then add one more, let's just re underline the importance of looking at the company itself. Stocks go up or down, and the movements the stock market makes are driven by investors. It's nothing the company did. It's you or me buying or selling, creating demand or supply, and all of a sudden prices move as a result. The companies, meanwhile, just continue executing with their purpose, with their products and services. I hope trying to win for all stakeholders uh, from one day to the next, to say nothing of one quarter to the next. So for me, the winners are the ones that do that really well. And I'm confident over time that winners will win. So the, the point I'm re-emphasizing here is just making sure you like the company itself and its performance, that it's, it's adhering to your own expectations or maybe consistently exceeding them, 
but always being comfortable realizing that sometimes your expectations and Wall Street's might be surprised. And as long as it's not a bad habit the company gets to into, if you feel good with what the company's doing, then sure, go ahead and buy a stock pursued by a bear. And then finally, just one new note that I'll add pertinent directly to your mailbag item. You're talking about fresh powder here. You're talking about new money that you're adding to the market. I really don't think for the most part that you need to label any money that you add to the market as fresh or not, whether it's something you just saved and made from your salary, or you sold another stock and you have money to put into the market. In the end, the money doesn't know where it came from. It's yours, and it's yours to decide on. So I don't think we should necessarily take any different attitude as we make any purchase uh, with capital that we have. And I also don't think we should spend too much time labeling things winner and loser, because after all, some great companies get sold off, sometimes well more than 50%, often multiple times like Tesla or Amazon has on their way to stock market glory. So you have to recognize that losing to win is a reality for not just for you and me as investors, and I've done a whole podcast on that, but for the companies themselves and the results they generate one quarter to the next. It's very hard to win every single quarter, to beat people's expectations every quarter of every year. You and I should expect that these companies are human just like we are. And so the the fresh powder that we bring, whether it's fresh or not, in the end, you should be putting it toward the thing that you think has the best chance of flourishing five years from today. I hope that's helpful, Benjamin. Thanks for the note. And rule breaker, mailback item number six. Let's close it out this month with Linda from Austin. I'm a fool since 2008-ish, and I want to be longer than that. At the risk of too much information, I'm sharing the blow. In case anyone in your organization needs motivation on how transformational your business is, for the little gals out here, Linda writes, Motley Fool has changed the trajectory of our lives. My husband and I, he now 71 and me 57, were both low salary local government employees early in our careers looking forward to the promise of a tiny pension. He stayed on at the city and got his pension. I left government jobs for small startup opportunities, more money but most with no 401k plans. I quickly realized I was on my own for retirement planning. We couldn't afford me to get remotely close to funding a Roth, but still I tried. We had zero knowledge of money, just that we had little, and we tried to live within our means. Well, the 1990s and 2000s Sunday newspaper articles in the Austin American Statesman educated me to the point that I felt confident to subscribe and begin investing. Now, Linda is referencing our syndicated newspaper column, which is still out in some papers, even some papers that are still in print these days, but a wonderful long-running relationship we've had with Universal Press Syndicate. And no fool more than Selena Moranjian, longtime employee and sometime contractor for The Motley Fool. No one has put more time in than Selena to make those Sunday newspaper articles in your local finance section from The Motley Fool to make them sparkle. So I want to make sure I thank Selena yet again right here, because Selena, here is some of the legacy that you have created. You're getting to hear it from Linda's lips. So let's go back to this note. My first subscription may have been $100. That was probably a stock advisor subscription, I'm guessing. Linda, that was a big deal back then, she writes. My first Roth contribution was $400, February 2009. 
with a total, and this is her total, of $43,067.55 contributed to date to her Roth. So that first contribution, $400 today, it sits at $222,395.28. I love that we're taking it out to cents for specificity. And with only 2018 to 2021, Linda writes, being fully funded. Before 2018, the most I'd ever managed to save was only $3,000. Most years were under $2,500, and a couple of those years had zero when I worked at a financial firm and was barred from trading. And if there are a couple of chapters to this note, here comes the second one, because we're about to hear what Linda's work was like at that trading firm. So one of those brokers, Linda writes, tried to shame me out of actively managing my own account. He said I had no business buying individual stocks. I am so happy you taught me to be contrary. I briefly worked for a commission-based advisor and then a fee-for-service firm. The commission-based guy had me licensed for 6 and 63. Those are licenses to work at a brokerage firm. He didn't expect I would understand and apply what I learned and researched enough to know that a commission-based recommendation he gave to me was a ripoff for me. So I picked the Vanguard Star Fund instead. I didn't last much longer in that office. What a blessing that education and firing was. Sometimes a bad job is a good thing. Even though a person is considered a fiduciary, that doesn't mean they will always act as one. He was one of their top performers, Linda adds. I was told I was privileged to work for him. They fired him not long after he fired me. I don't think I will ever be able to fully trust an advisor that sells products. I've dabbled in other full subscriptions, Linda writes. I think I even canceled Stock Advisor, but always I come back. Now I'm following Stock Advisor and Rule Your Retirement. Just yesterday, I bought ETFs to build my Rule Your Retirement model portfolio. Giddy, Linda writes, is an understatement. I have rule breakers, but we'll end that once this annual subscription ends. I still can't afford having multiple subscriptions and can't afford the big dog subscriptions. The new Find Stocks feature in Stock Advisor that includes Everlasting and Rule Breakers guidance, by the way, is exciting. Thank you for adding that. Well, thank you, Linda. That's to the credit of my brother Tom and our team continually trying to enhance our services. Over the last four years in my current job, I've been able to begin fully funding a 401k with 6% matching, wow, nice, for my employer and will fully fund an HSA. That's a health savings account. And she mentions that's another full educational recommendation. I am on track to be saving 53% of my income this year and plan to do the same every year until retirement. I'm on track to see a total portfolio over $400,000 by December. She concludes, saving for myself always felt like paying to someone else, but now it is super exciting. And now my husband, who had refused to learn about investing, is reading full articles and offering additional family reserves to be invested in a non-retirement account. Smiley. He's a saver and built us a nice safety net over and over, but was always afraid to do more than put in the credit union savings account. Thank you. Thank you for making investing understandable and accessible. Thank you for keeping Stock Advisor and Rule Your Retirement affordable. Thank you for the guidance that helps me to challenge advisors' assumptions that my accounts should go into an annuity. 
Maybe an annuity has a place in my portfolio down the road, but you can bet I will know the ins and outs of that product before I purchase. Signed, Linda in Austin. Well, there are about 16 beautiful things in that note, and that's why I wanted to share it right at the end of this week's mailbag. But three things kind of jump out to me as I listen to your story, Linda. The first one is what I'll call that man behind the curtain moment, or the Wicked Witch is Dead moment. And what I love about both of those is they, of course, both come from The Wizard of Oz. I'm thinking of the movie here. And in both cases, they're remarkable turns in the story. All of a sudden, you see the great and powerful Oz, who's just a man behind the curtain. Shocking, eye-opening moment. Or as the Wicked Witch is melted, spoiler alert, I'm, I hope I didn't spoil The Wizard of Oz for anybody with that one. But as the Wicked Witch melts away, all of a sudden, all of her guards, presumably her faithful troops, said, all hail Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead. I love both of those moments in The Wizard of Oz. They do the same thing. They open our eyes to the reality that we had no idea was in place. They shock us in a good way. And I feel like you had a couple of those moments yourself. And so thank you for exposing the man behind the curtain. The second thing I was thinking, Linda, is you're reminding us it is never too late and you are never too small to get started investing. I love hearing about your journey. You've been doing it for a while, but your middle to older age is a couple and it's still such a near and present thing for you and you're working thinking about the future. And good news, you've got a lot of years left and a great plan in place. A lot of people are hearing us right now who are in their mid-40s thinking they finally need to get off the schneid, maybe save some money, maybe kids' college is paid off. They can finally start paying off their own debt. In a lot of cases, it's a reminder to all of us, wherever you come from, it is never too late and you are never too small to get started. Thank you for that part of your story, Linda. And then the last one, of course, I saw, especially toward the end in your enthusiasm, your husband's relatively newfound enthusiasm about this topic. I've observed this phenomenon many times before. I've highlighted it before on Rule Breaker Investing. I predict I will do so in future because it's human and it's natural. And that is that the better you invest, the better you save. There is no greater inspiration to start saving and saving better than realizing what you've already saved, that money is making more money on its own. As people have their eyes open to the man behind the curtain and they find out when the Wicked Witch is dead, everybody was cheering for that. When they have that switch on moment, all of a sudden they start to realize, you know what, honey, we should save more. And so one of the best ways to increase the American savings rate, in my opinion, to conclude, is to get as many Americans as possible invested. And good news, a lot of us are, even if it's just through our 401k, even if we've never picked an individual stock directly, we are invested. But the more we switch on, the better our future will be. And I think the better the world will be. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, fools, for a wonderful August. Hope everybody has a great weekend coming up. See you in September. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.